0: 2020 has been a year unlike any other. People are waking up to the fact that decisions that they make and decisions that they don't make have real consequences on their own lives and the lives of their fellow humans. One change I've made, both for myself and the planet this year, is to wear carbon-neutral, plant-based running shoes. I now rock Allbirds tree dashers. They're made of premium natural materials and are sustainably produced on top of looking dope, and being the most comfortable running shoes I've ever owned. When I wear Allbirds, I know I'm taking care of my feet and Mother Earth. Learn about Allbirds' commitment to leaving the planet better than they found it and cop your own pair of kicks today at allbirds.com. Hi, this is
1: Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tron Quest. Fred Armisen.
0: Prince Paul.
1: Javier Munoz, half
2: Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim. And you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. What's up?
0: It's Elia Einhorn here. Welcome back to the Talk House Podcast. On this week's show, a conversation I've been very excited to share with you. Paul Banks of Interpol and the new band Muzz, with visual artist and Obey Clothing founder and honcho, Shepard Ferry, To help me set up the show, joining from Chi-Town, it's Josh Modell. What's up, Elio? Hey, hey, man, executive editor on the line. As always. Now, Josh, this talk originally aired as a talkhouse live on Insta, I believe you were in that stream somewhere throwing hearts. Hearts, thumbs up, uh, the occasional comment, I'm there. So Josh, did you prefer Paul's surfboard tee or Shepard's bad brains one? I got to go with the bad brains t-shirt, both because it's a classic and because I'm not familiar with surfboard. It's a great word though. (laughs) Thanks for that, Beyonce. Josh, I know that you are familiar with Interpol. You're a longtime fan of the group.
3: Big fan of Interpol, you know, one of the most important influential bands that came out of New York in the early aughts. Of course, I think everybody knows their classic 2002 album, Turn On The Bright Lights, which they reference in this conversation. But Paul's had a really interesting career since then. He formed a supergroup with Wu-Tang Clan's RZA
0: called Banks and Steals. Yeah, and Paul and RZA came on the Talk House podcast back in 2016 when that record dropped.
3: That's right. That was a great episode. And now he's back with another supergroup called Muzz, which also includes Josh Kaufman of Bonnie Light Horseman, and who's sort of a multi-instrumentalist player around New York. He contributes to Taylor Swift's folklore also. And on drums, Matt Barrick of The Walkman and Fleet Foxes. Muzz's self-titled debut just came out, even though they have been playing together on and off since
0: 2015. From that record, let's check out the track, Bad Feeling.
1: We're pretty ancient,
0: it's what all the silence means. Speed runs the whole generation, torment the beast. So long. It's always so cool to see Paul Banks stretching in new directions artistically.
3: Yeah, obviously that'll work for Interpol fans, but it's different enough that there's a reason that he's not doing it with Interpol, right?
0: Totally, totally.
3: So I'm not the only Interpol fan on this podcast. Shepard Ferry, huge fan from way
0: back when as well. A lot of folks first heard of Shepard's work in 2008 via his iconic and ubiquitous Hope illustration of Obama. But graffiti enthusiasts and skaters have had Shepard on their radar since the 80s when he established himself as a street artist extraordinaire and the designer of the iconic Andre the Giant Has a Posse logo, which went on to be the defining image for his clothing line Obey, which he launched in 2001.
3: Yeah, Shepard's done poster design work for Interpol and album covers for bands like Rise Against, Smashing Pumpkins, Stone Temple Pilots, Led Zeppelin, and
0: more. You have seen his work. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Josh, these two old friends, and as you say, collaborators, get into a lot in this talk. With Shepard being involved, of course, it takes in a lot of politics and the upcoming election.
3: Yes, he has thoughts. We also hear about how they met and the evolution of their art.
0: They talk about the thrill and the intricacies of collaborating with other artists.
3: Yeah, and of course, what they're up to now. Paul doing Muzz in addition to Interpol, and Shepard discovering new colors to use after all these years. Love it. Shirella Tape? Yeah, let's hear it.
2: Hey, what's up man? How are you, Paul? Good, how are you? You know, we got an election coming up, so I'm working hard on that. It's just a, you know, small thing like the future of the world at stake.
1: <laughs> yeah, what are you what are you working on?
2: Well, I am doing a bunch of different get out the vote initiatives. Different images coming from different angles. Um, some of it sort of leaning into the racial justice stuff that I think is so important. Um, some of it just reminding people about all the vile things Trump has done to undermine democracy and undermine First Amendment rights of protest. So, yeah, it, it's coming from a range of angles. So I'm trying to make sure that that the younger woke folks um, who might not be excited about Biden are reminded that not Voting is still a gift to the opposition and then doing some other things that are, you know, geared maybe towards the more traditional Democratic Party. It's a bit of a mind fuck because there's just so many different ideas, so many different voices. There have been other times when I felt like it was easier to unite people. This is not one of those moments, really.
1: Right.
2: Yeah. How, how are you?
1: I'm good. I mean that was a great intro, man. That's you know, start with the important stuff. I appreciate that.
2: I'm well. I'm in Scotland. Where in Scotland? Edinburgh, bruh. Yeah. My um my parents have been there and said how lovely it is, but I've never been.
1: Yeah, it's really nice. Um I guess we can go back and forth between sort of the frivolous and the the heavy, because I don't want to like shy away from everything that you started with. But uh not frivolous, but like, you know, um yeah. low key. Edinburgh, I think because of the pandemic at this time of year, would be really overrun with tourists and it's not at all. So I think it's actually quite idyllic. And Right. I've been, I've been fortunate with where I got stuck through this uh, experience. Edinburgh is very, very lovely. And I think they're having a relatively nice summer here because it's, it's cold AF. Um, in the winter. Yeah. Dude, no, it's cold in the summer. It's just cold. This place is just cold.
2: Really? Really? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Not I mean, not like a San Francisco cold where relative to the rest of California, it gets chilly, but actually cold.
1: Right. Yeah. No, it's actually <laughs> bitterly, bitterly cold. Have you been in California the whole time?
2: Mostly. Yeah. I went on a, a week long trip to see my parents in South Carolina because I hadn't seen them they have a house that's out in the middle of nowhere along a Creek that we could basically just fly in and go straight there and not be around a bunch of people still waiting to get my COVID test back to make sure I didn't get anything on the plane, but Mm -hmm. I feel all right. So, um, that's the only thing I've done. Otherwise I've been really sticking to my routine in LA. Most of my staff can work remotely. And, uh, you know, I have a few art assistants that are helping me at my studio, but, It's really been, and I hate to say this because I know that a lot of people are suffering, but in a lot of ways, it's allowed me to focus on what I think is the best use of my time. Yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, the simplicity, the imposed simplicity, I think is conducive if you're like a creative or if, you know, it's not just like a living nightmare based on other circumstances. I think it's like, I benefit from having just a a very routine existence. I find myself to be very creative and, very productive. So I've, I'm not been hating it. So when you said you're working on the stuff around the election, like how does that get disseminated? When like, is it done? Is it out there? I don't really grasp how the hope thing with Obama became. So like, do you do it locally and then it just blows up or like, how do you disseminate what you're working on?
2: Well, with the Obama, I had a free download of the image on my website and it was a PDF that was infinitely scalable without losing resolution. So People printed it and did their own thing, but I also sold 1,400 posters and a couple of paintings to fund printing 300,000 posters and half a million stickers that were given away. Wow. And, and you know, that thing was lightning in a bottle that I, I don't know if it could ever be recreated. Obama's skills as an orator and him being half black and us coming out of a very dark time with Bush, I think that... There are a lot of variables converging harmoniously for an iconic portrait of Obama to resonate and become a transmittable symbol. Um, Those variables don't always come together. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, like...
1: what you can control, and then the rest is
2: the cosmos. Yeah, exactly. This time around, I'm working with uh, several different organizations. So Americans for the Arts, who are basically working to make sure that there's government... Funding for a lot of the art and music programs, and you know our economy is largely driven by the culture we export, which is yeah. obviously creative. Yeah. So um, you know there've been studies that show that there's an eight dollar return on every dollar invested in the arts. And you know I'm not trying to sound like oh. a like a capitalist, but I think it's about the people's spirit, like what nurtures their spirit. Mm -hmm. But what also works economically, it's a win-win. So obviously encouraging people to vote for candidates they think support the arts. But that's probably the most frivolous of the things that I'm doing. I wouldn't consider the arts frivolous at all. But, you know, compared to um, voting rights and other civil rights being taken away from people, it it feels a bit frivolous. So I'm I'm working also with um, People for the American Way. I'm working with an organization called Remember What They Did, which is illustrating around quotes from Lindsey Graham, Trump, of course, um, Mitch McConnell, Lisa Murkowski, anything things that they've, they've said that basically show that the Republican Party has lost all legitimate right to claim that it does what's best for the people. But, you know, within all this stuff, I still try to have the pure joy of creating a picture I'm excited about. And, yeah. you know, the, solving that problem is, is not always easy. I mean, you know, Muzz and Interpol, are, they're not political bands. And, you know, obviously I, I love what you do, but in the more, I, I think, proper analogy to what I do as a visual artist is more like The Clash or Dead Kennedys or Bob mm-hmm. Marley, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. all who far exceed what my meager capabilities can bring to the table it's very, very admirable. It's a powerful thing and you've done a lot. Yeah, well, thanks. But you know, um, that being said, I think that nurturing the arts where people expose their, their vulnerability, they tell their stories, they express themselves, it connects them to the best part of their humanity. And when yeah. people have that outlet, I just think it makes them better people in general. You can look at specific issues, but you can also just look at the healthy side of that being available to people. When it comes to um, prison recidivism, people who are in prison who have arts and music programs mm-hmm. are half as likely to reoffend and go back to jail yeah that's incredible
1: and I, I think even with racism for instance it to me often kind of seems to boil down to lack of imagination somehow, like how you can get set in kind of like a faulty belief or just be influenced perhaps too much by what you see or what you've heard around you and not be able to think like, well, maybe the people around me are just morons. And, you know, I think it's kind of a lack of, Imagination and education often like leads to racist sentiment. And so I feel like doing anything that cultivates the imagination or kind of activates people to think yeah. more abstractly, it also opens up history and the rest of the world when you cultivate the arts. And like somebody gets into an artist and finds out like, oh, this dude was from like Italy and yada, yada, yada. So I think the arts is a, is a tremendously important thing.
2: Well, I, I couldn't agree with you more about the racism thing, right? You know, before I, I came in here to talk to you was at my art studio, talking to one of my art assistants who uh, you know, I've known since 1986, we met at a skateboard contest. He's, he's, a, he's a guy that, you know, uh, is very intelligent. We're obviously aligned on a lot of stuff, but still we're trying to deconstruct what leads to these unfortunate behaviors and, um, you know, a failure of imagination, creativity, and a sense of, victimization that you're powerless in your own life, people wanna find scapegoats when they feel that way. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if Trump and Fox News and Breitbart provide all these scapegoats in immigrants and non-white people and people who are supposedly parasites or criminals, you know, all of these things, if you want to peel back the layers, are, are easy to make a argument against. But when you're feeling powerless, why would you want to find a counter argument when the only way to feel okay about yourself because you feel powerless and you don't have the imagination to look at different routes to lift yourself up or seek common things with other people that's the lazy route to go and uh like you said education and and you know arts and you know other forms of expression are definitely not necessarily going to eradicate that altogether but it it's 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 a good antidote. Yeah, I
1: feel like art is kind of special and unifying in that way, and I think sport is kind of a great unifying thing, too, that yeah. sort of allows people to transcend their normal group. I don't, I don't know, it just kind of
2: transcends. Makes. Sense. I mean, m- music, too. I mean, look yeah, at, okay. um, look, like, you know, prior to rock and roll, the labels were putting out race records, meaning, like, just for a Black audience. And then, you know, Little Richard and, and Chuck Berry and... You know, muddy waters. Like uh, all of a sudden, you've got swinging hipsters like the Rolling Stones that are into that stuff, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know that 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 changes things. You did a collaboration with the RZA. I mean, yeah. there you go. That's like the two tone movement of uh, of this decade,
1: right? Yeah, that was an amazing experience. I mean, we're still we're still doing some. We're working on on music actually. That's still an active project. Nice. They had mentioned some kind of like talking points, I guess. There were some interesting ideas and one of them was to talk about how we met which i thought was was a pretty good story if you want to take that back like how how we know each other sure um version you want to go with yours
2: i mean if you want to give your version i'll i'll give the honest version after
1: (laughs) um i was uh i was living in new york in the late 90s i went to nyu and the dorm room next to my dorm room had a sticker on it that said andre the giant has a posse and I just kind of instantly was like, that's that's the coolest thing that I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> seriously, I was like, that's fucking genius right there. And then I would continue to kind of see like the Andre the Giant eyes around New York City and Soho and stuff. And I, I would always just notice that, you know, that sticker, another big sticker at that time was lotion. This Somebody was putting the word lotion over all the phone booths. Yeah, I remember that but yours was like far more compelling. I just kind of thought, I thought the lotion was like, yeah, that that was the sort of sillier one. So anyway, then I was working at Interview Magazine and I was trying to like pitch stories and stuff. So I, I uh, I did a little bit of research to find out who was doing these Andre the Giant has a posse stickers. And I discovered you, and then I believe I called your gallery to try and schedule an interview. And I think I maybe even spoke to Amanda who referred me to your manifesto on your website, which I then read and was sort of like, oh my God, I fucking love everything about this rationale, which in my memory was a lot to do with kind of just like jarring people into like you're being like sold to and propagandized by all the visual information that you're bombarded with all the time, Mm -hmm. everywhere. And it's important to kind of take a second and have a critical look at what you're looking at, because sometimes there'll be whatever, the, the codes of culture that might be getting kind of like imposed on, on people or just whatever, fast food type shit. I was really struck by that idea that all the visual advertisement, everything in the advertisement world sort of like kind of commenting on and commenting on the human experience. So I found that very fascinating. So I was a big fan of yours. I don't think I ever got through to doing the interview. Then fast forward probably about a year or two years and Interpol's playing our first ever very faithful Coachella performance. that had like tons of like Fuck ups with the. I think we had to start the first song four times. We got off stage and backstage, you approached me and uh, said, "Hi, my name's Shepard." And my recollection is that I said, "Not like the Shepherd Fairy." And then that was that. Then we started talking.
2: Yeah, well, um, I did not know about the Interview magazine and the research and, and all that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm blushing. Um, that's so <laughs> cool because. In 2002, I was doing a show in in Boston. And um, when I lived in Providence, Rhode Island, where I started the sticker campaign, I used to always go poster bombing in in Boston and stenciling and stickering. And I would make my way down Mass Ave and I would stop at Newberry Comics and Tower Records. And that specific Tower Records always had, you know, an eye on good stuff. And um, it was well curated. And I went into that Tower Records The same one where I'd picked up the VHS copy of The Great Rock and Roll Swindle by the Sex Pistols or, you know, various cool, cool things that weren't that easy to find. And there was an end of aisle display of Turn on the Bright Lights. Mm -hmm. And I just looked at the album cover and without knowing anything about the music, I just thought they've got this at the end of the aisle for a reason. I really like the cover. I'm gonna take a chance on this. And um as soon as I put it into the C D player, I was like, This is my new favorite band. <laughs> and um yeah, I know there've been a lot of joy division comparisons and it's basically be- because you you know, you've got a baritone voice and so did Ian Curtis, but I immediately loved your voice, but I didn't see it as you know, as occupying the same stylistic zone as Joy Division, other than that, you know, that it was moody, but it was also propulsive. And Amanda and I just, you know, we just fell in love with the album and we became obsessed with it. It was the first album I put on every single day. And I listened to it probably two or three times during every day. Mm -hmm. So when you guys were playing at Coachella, I was pretty much stalking you. Mm -hmm. And um, the first person I talked to was Carlos D, who said, Hey man, um, sorry, we got to play an encore, which was a total lie. He just wanted to get rid of me. But then yeah. when I went up to you, I had some stickers in my pocket. I thought he might not know my name; most people don't. But he might recognize the imagery. So yeah. when I pulled out the stickers and said, "Hey, uh, Paul, I'm, I'm, you know I'm Shepard," you go fairy, and just like a, a, you know, a wash of relief came over me that I wasn't going to get the Carlos treatment again.
1: Right. In his defense, he probably thought we had an encore. Honestly, I don't think he. Did. <laughs>
2: Well, I mean, he and I became friends later, but but my initial encounter with Carlos wasn't the best. But anyway, you know that you were you were really friendly right after getting off stage. Which, by the way, the show sounded great. You guys screwed up twice, mm-hmm. but there was a but there was a sort of dignified perfectionism.
1: Do you mean like the, you're about the beginning screw up, right? Not like are you yeah. talking like okay?
2: Because there was probably like two hundred little screw ups, but you mean like the, the to two, me 600. to me it was. To me, it was perfection. Um, it was, you know, few bands that have a very, very atmospheric sound can translate that live the way the studio mm-hmm. recording works. And, you know, whether it's it's the sort of pedals you use and the, the delays and the, the, the echo, it's, you know, that's not my area of expertise, but it all sounded incredible to me. And um, I was happy that most of the people were overwatching the Red Hot Chili Peppers because I could get right up to the stage. Amanda and I could get right up to the stage. I remember that.
1: Yeah, I remember that. I wanted to say, because he's here in the, in, the, in the live, whatever, Harley, Harley's anchor, our sound guy from then until the present, uh, would have been doing the sound that day. And that's like the atmosphere mm-hmm. being translated from a record to like that outdoor stage yeah. has everything to do with having the right Front of house engineer and harley's like the greatest so i think that's that's how those things sound good out there it's a it's a funny thing like i can't really enjoy listening to the band live
2: it's like i can't listen to live recordings but uh it's interesting really? to say that the atmospheric is captured like that well i i mean you know you know how many times i've seen you guys probably 15 and um i've thought that the sound was great at every show. I mean, you know, there was um, that show in the old boxing hall in downtown L.A. that was maybe slightly echoey, the the acoustics in there. Mm -hmm. But I think that you guys always sound great. Knowing you, knowing Sam, knowing Daniel very well. I mean, it doesn't surprise me that there's a level of focus and perfectionism in everybody in the band that's that, that, that i think makes makes good art it's yeah, you know, taking it seriously i love punk rock because it's not about virtuosity
1: totally
2: you know it's about spirit but you know if you if you develop the skills to achieve your vision really precisely like you know more power to you and i you know i think that's what you guys do sorry i didn't mean to turn this into a sick of fantastic no, radio no. hey but before i forget You know, then I I saw you guys again at the Palladium in L.A. And, you know, we talked a little bit more and I think we exchanged information. And then maybe a few months after that, you hit me up about working on some stuff for Antics. And really, like, I'm not exaggerating that I'd worked with a lot of bands that I liked that were maybe past their prime or were going to be smaller bands. But that moment that you called me, I was like, okay. I've always wanted to feel like I could do a project that was like Warhol working with the Velvet Underground, and that's how it felt to me to wow, amazing. to be able to do something with you guys that was you know out of the ordinary and a and a collaboration and like a a project that broke the mold of how to launch an album and to interpolate some of the ingredients in uh you know <laughs> in what what was going on as you guys recorded and some of the documentation, and it was very organic and worked really well. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah thanks for that. That's always okay. going to be something that I look back on fondly. Dude, Same. Same. Absolutely.
1: With the idea of a band, you're kind of a quintessential solo artist. Is there any part of you that feels like you would like to be in a band or, like, work in a collaborative way, or is it super crucial that you kind of work alone and get your vision out?
2: Well, I'm into... um struggling through my process, which is a lot of trial and error by myself, kind of like the caveman. Don't need directions, woman. <laughs> Must figure this out myself, uh, yeah. you know, while I do something with a bloody elbow yeah. um, until someone invents brushes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, you're, you're totally inspired. <laughs> but I do collaborate with, with people, but I don't have a strong enough intuitive skill to come into a group dynamic and just say, bam, 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 here's what we all need to do with the confidence that that's not gonna be a waste of time. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that one of the things that's incredible about music groups and that, that collaborative thing is that when people lock into a chemistry and a groove, it's such magic. And a lot of times what happens, and this is me being an outsider looking in, is when that happens sort of incubates in isolation and the egos aren't inflated, it's sort of like that tight crew, like that gang against the world. And then stuff happens and the chemistry is in some way that the delicate balance of the chemistry is, is thrown off by outside forces. And I want to say to everybody that's ever thinking about being in a band or in a band that when you're capturing that magic, please don't screw it up because it's better for the world and better for you. Check your ego. Yeah. Um,
1: Yeah. Because I feel like that's kind of what boils down to with many of these things that are going wrong uh, in collaborations
2: is ego stuff. Um, yeah, I do work with other artists and I work with bands that frequently have an existing visual legacy. And I have to find a way to make sure that I'm touching upon that while also bringing my own thing into the mix. Yeah, that's kind um, of a to collaborate. Yeah, I mean, it's there's a lot of collaborative aspects to what you do, for sure.
0: This show is brought to you by Patreon, who ask creators, are you tired of being paid in clicks and likes? Social media and streaming platforms help people find your work, but getting you paid is another story. With Patreon, you can stop rolling the dice of ad revenue and per stream payouts and grow your creative career through the direct support of the people who care the most, your fans. Since Patreon is built for creators, not advertisers, you'll skip the middleman and develop a sustainable income source by offering a recurring membership to your fans. In turn, they'll get access to exclusive community, premium content, and the chance to become active participants in the work they love. The creative system is broken. So if you're a podcaster, video maker, musician, writer, illustrator, a creative person of any kind, sign up on Patreon.com now. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and change the way your creativity is valued by building the steady income stream you deserve.
2: I think it's cool that there's a lot of people that are deciding it's okay to just do what they're inspired by, even if it doesn't end up being as strong as the thing they're primarily known for. Our culture has a kind of a backlash to you not staying in the lane that the audience has chosen for you. But then you get
1: a backlash if you do stay in the
2: lane. Right. But, you know, I, I think people should just do what they're inspired by. And, uh, totally. yeah, there's always going to be people that say you should have done more of what you did before or people that say you haven't evolved enough. But you know, I, I kind of look at David Bowie as like when I'm feeling insecure about what I should do, I'm like, well, what would David Bowie do? And he'd just do what he felt like and also bring on like the hot shit musicians that he liked to help make sure it was
1: good. (laughs) Yeah, that was something that you, something you said kind of inspired in me was this, like, wisdom that comes, I think, with a lot of experience or that it took me a long time to realize that, like, getting help from people is is this great, great tool, because I think you can put a lot of, like, pressure on yourself to be able to do everything or, like, do the the entirety of the thing, or at least I did, and I think, like, that's the beauty is like just getting help from people. And I feel like things kind of really open up when you learn to sort of ask for help or, you know, absolutely criticism or, you know, ask for advice. It's a really, it's a blessing.
2: And I, and I think that, you know, maybe it's some part of our more primitive biological imperative to think that we independent of everything else, like us against the world, we're going to be fine. We got this, but really like every single person is benefiting from the entirety of history that they can access and understand, as well as what's just unconsciously woven into their DNA that they can thank all those years of evolution for. So I just say asking other people for help is just like acknowledging all those things that come together to allow us to do what we do and and not being embarrassed of it. It's (laughs) all one big collaboration in the end. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I love the, the Picasso quote good artists borrow, great artists steal. But what he's saying there isn't, it's good to plagiarize. I think what he's saying is to acknowledge inspiration and not be ashamed of it, but just you know, own it and keep moving forward. That's really how, if we're all being honest, how we're proceeding in the world. You know, mm-hmm. There is no tabula rasa. It's a great saying that I also like,
1: have, have thought about. And to me, the way that, that Picasso said resonates I hear it as kind of or like, and, and I think this is probably me projecting where I'm at in my life, but this idea of like letting it be fun. Yeah. And I think by sort of being a little bit like that idea of like steal it's just sort of like take all your inspiration and just like do whatever you feel like, you know, rather than sort yeah. of being a little bit hypercritical to the point of stifling your your own vision. How do you keep the flow going creatively? This is actually, I think, one of the talking points that they asked was sort of like, how do you maintain a creativity and pivot and do new things? And I think, yeah, I guess like within the process, how do you feel like you've managed to stay creative? And is it even anything well, you had to manage to do, you know, for instance? like,
2: um, I've had dreams about creative block where, you know, I woke up in a panic. Luckily, I've never experienced sustained creative block and one of the one of the reasons i think is that like a you know an athlete that trains all the time and and you know and stays like stretches and jogs i'm oh. i'm creating all day every day basically mm-hmm. so i'm quite in practice now the downside of that can be that you know when you do the same exercises all the time that maybe you're getting formulaic and you're not considering how to evolve. So I, I think that um, that balance of input and output is really important. Totally. And I read a lot. I listen to a lot of music. You know, I watch the news and I collect a lot of books on art and design and photography and architecture. And you also, you, you have a mission as an artist, I feel like. I feel like
1: we kind of started talking about the sort of political side of things like you or The Clash. Uh, I feel like yeah. you, have, you, have a, you have a mission that I think that probably sustains it
2: too. Yes. And one of the things that like what you were talking about, keeping it fun that I always try to remember is that, you know, as I've developed various aesthetics and techniques that I think are successful, it can start to, you know, narrow your focus, which can be good, but it can also be bad. So, you know, then relying on the same thing, sometimes I have to open the lens back up. Mm-hmm. And let more molecules collide, start throwing more things into the mix that I experiment with. Exciting things come out of that. And, you know, even though a lot of my artwork is about questioning the machinations of capitalism and the brutality of capitalism, we live in a capitalist world. And I, for years, couldn't make enough money as an artist. So I had to do commercial graphic design. And what that did, which was a, a benefit, an unexpected benefit, was. It meant that in trying to solve the client's agenda, I was not just working thinking this is my art I'm sharing with the world. It forced me to take different routes to a solution aesthetically and conceptually. And that meant that good things that came out of that process, I could then pull back into my own art. So now what I try to do, because I don't have those pressures and I do almost no commercial work, is I think like how do i create that problem for myself of looking through things that inspire me and thinking like oh you know maybe this technique is something i should tinker around with or this and that and because you know maybe there's my color palette the you know the way i illustrate there's all these variables weaving in a new variable allows my work to evolve but still be recognizable mm-hmm. so that's been that's been a a, a very deliberate process for me
1: mhm wow is there something new in the, in like, you know, current Shepherd? Is there like some kind of new ingredient or new thing that you're like getting way into that you could expand on?
2: Well, about three years ago, I started to incorporate a lot of blues in my work for years. I was doing pretty much all red, black, gold, cream, cream. kind of the classic propaganda and advertising palette advertising, of course, being the uh, dominant Western form of propaganda, but, I realized that there's a very aggressive tone to that color combination. And if I wanted to agitate or provoke, that's great. But if I wanted to seduce, that wasn't as good. And so, um, yeah, I started to bring in the shades of blue and also wanting to have my work be iconic, but not feel totally simple and and always like a propaganda poster. Mm -hmm. I started to photograph a lot of, ripped posters out on the street, because I think there's a beauty to a lot of those organic shapes. But when posters that are put up by promotional companies or whatever on the street are ripped, you get a cropped glimpse of typography or image from what's beneath. And there's a really nice sense of multiple stories, um, multiple perspectives that come out of that or they can, you know, be multiple perspectives reinforcing the dominant narrative. But but I've found that that's a tool to allow me to have more information, more poetry, more subtlety in the work, and reference back to the medium. And you know, McLuhan, oh, yeah, the medium right. is the message. Yeah, yeah. My work, my work in the street was always about don't force the viewer to go to an elite zone, to a gallery, to a museum take the work to the people. And so, you know, even in the work itself, in, in sort of a meta way, there's a reference back to that spirit.
1: Yeah, I love that. Are you saying that you actually are implementing kind of like a simulation of that ripping or is that simply like... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. If you, sure. if
2: you go to my website and look at some of the imagery from the last three years, a lot of it has that. Not all of it.
1: Beautiful. But, um, I, I love the blue bit so much. It's both. It's It's an expanded color palette kind um, totally interesting to me, by the way, like everything you just said was super interesting and awesome, so thanks
2: <laughs> well thanks I, I feel like I'm monopolizing this in a really embarrassing way. I, mean, I don't know. you talked to me about about Muzz when we went out to dinner, mm-hmm. like what was that three years ago now yeah <laughs> and, and um you know I really liked the the name you were sort of debating still about the name yeah you know, I just discovered the record because. I didn't know it was out. I'm sort of like in my bubble, but, um, but I really like the tunes a lot. Your voice is always something that's going to give a lot of flavor to any project you're involved in. But, you know, there's a lot of different textures and the horn elements and, you know, the, the drumming is a different vibe. There's, there's a lot of different cool textures and a, a sort of, in some ways, like a, almost like a folk psychedelic dreamy thing happening with some of it. Perfect. Yeah. Um, Perfect. That's, I that's, love the album cover, too. I think the album covers, the colors and everything are, are really, really great. Thanks. It, it feels both nostalgic and modern at the same time, if that makes any sense. It's like the Split Fountain color fade is very like late 60s, early 70s. But then also a ton of like new electronic acts are doing stuff with that. So Did you say Split Fountain color fade? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's what they call it. Is for printers. when you We have multiple inks. They're going at once, creating a color transition. It's called Split Fountain. Oh, cool. That's awesome. Uh, they don't do that on computers, though. I mean, you can simulate it on a computer, yeah. but I'm, I'm, like, I'm like such a Luddite analog guy, old guy. Vocab
1: Luddite is a great word. Uh, recidivist was a great word, though, in a, <laughs> a
2: darker context. I like the videos, too. I watched um, Knuckle Duster. Knuckle Duster, I think, is my favorite song on the record. Cool. Um, really love that song. Yeah, Red
1: Western Sky and Knuckle Duster, I think those are the kind of more upbeat songs on the record. Videos, dude, I'm, I'm, that's like some of the most fun I've had in years is editing videos. I am gaga for editing videos. I think it satisfies something that, like, painting satisfies for me, where if anything goes wrong, I just fix it. And so, like, with film, especially film that's, that syncs with music, there's visual flow and sonic flow. It's just like the poetry of, of movement and motion and everything is in kind of film. And editing it is when you can kind of, like, cut right before a blink or, like, cut right before someone's gesture becomes kind of self-conscious and it just looks, like, spontaneous. You can just fix everything, solve everything, like, make everything, like, perfect. And it's such a satisfying. There's some part of me kind of, you know, neurotically that likes, I think, to make everything perfect. And so at times I feel like I need to check in and be mindful of the fact that if you're doing something that you like so much that you actually are
2: giggling while you're doing
1: it, then that's like something you should probably do more
2: of. Definitely. Well, I I mean, I knew that you had directed a few of the Interpol videos and you, did you edit them as well or just direct? I edited. Yeah. I mean, everything is wrong. And all the rage back home. Did you you worked on both of those, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I mean, those those are those are beautiful videos. And um, you know, a lot of people that don't know Interpol, which it were up to me, there would be zero of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I can do an intro, I use the all the rage back home video because the song is incredible. But the video, the way the surfing and the band footage all work together stylistically and to create a you know a sense of energy, but also light play and mood, it's just totally masterful. And also I love when people think that on paper, things wouldn't work together and then you prove them wrong. Mm-hmm. It's like my whole life's been about proving people wrong. Like real artists don't use text in their work. Uh, real artists don't do stuff on the street. Um, blah, 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 you know? And I'm like, okay, let me see. You tell me I can't do it, you know? So uh, did somebody tell you that, that Interpol and surfing shouldn't mix and then you just <laughs> came up with a dazzling case study to disprove them?
1: Dude, I mean, I don't <laughs> even know if I should say it because like the original version of that, like it'll, it'll probably like ruin the illusion for you. But there was a third visual element that I had intended to put into that video, which was old people. Ah. And it was the old and infirm <laughs> surfing in the band. Somehow I felt like all of that imagery would work, but in the end, I think it was the right call to just like streamline it to the, to the surfing. But I would also say, in answer to your question, like that was me kind of first dialing into like taking what is fun. Like I was kind of in the process of discovering surfing for myself at that time, so I feel like it's mm-hmm. just like, take stuff that you love and, and let that impact what you're doing. We've only got yeah, like, well, a little bit of time left. I was just thinking, I, it struck me, I went to one of your art shows and you, let, you got me into a Nas gig. Remember that? Oh yeah, yeah. That was cool. Um, that was the last time I was at a show with you, I think.
2: Like at a art show of yours, and uh, at a yeah. concert. Yeah, that was, yeah, that, was uh, that was fun. That was um, when we did a thing called the Provocateurs. That was um, you know about about artists that are trying to ruffle feathers, I guess. Whether it's with what they're saying or the style of their work in Chicago, and, and Interpol was playing. At Lollapalooza which was great for me to get to see you guys play and then you and Daniel came by the show. Hennessy was underwriting that and I was really drunk embarrassingly drunk that night. I remember thinking like Paul and Daniel are really sharp guys with their shit together. I'm like I'm sloppy right now. I'm just not working at their level right now but you um you know when I mentioned it to you later you you were either kind or oblivious. Either one I'm fine with. (laughs) Yeah, no, not at all. I didn't notice. What are you listening to? Anything? I've been listening to the to the Muzz record, but uh, also, yeah, Run the Jewels just put out a new record that I really like. And um,
1: I love
2: that record, man. I, I run with that. Yeah. That's on my running playlist mixed in with um, Little
1: Baby and now Gucci Mane, but please.
2: I'm a huge Gang of Four fan, and they, they sample Ether by Gang of Four on, I think it's called Below the Ground or something. I didn't know that. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, you and I have bonded over hip-hop. You know, we both love Public Enemy and Biggie and, you know, you, you name it. But, like, I think a lot of people wouldn't have expected you from the band Interpol to be super into hip-hop.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I, I kind of, it's so funny because, I don't know, it just it just is what it is. But my passion has, has remained. I, I still love that genre. But uh, I've been listening to a I mean, little bit more rock.
2: I'm pretty omnivorous now. You know, I when I was younger, I had a little bit of the, you know, punk rock uh, fascist perspective of like, okay, right. this is the music that that I identify with, and now I've just shut everything else out, which I realized was if punk is about the free space, as Ian MacKay says, like I was being the opposite of that. So, punk is about open mindedness and and the opportunity to do anything you want. And when Public Enemy and Eric B and Rock him and Boogie Down Productions came out, and NWA, I was like. This is basically the new punk rock. So, you know, I'm very open about what I listen to. I ju- it just has to be good. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Because we started so heavy, I was just even thinking, like, there's some really heavy stuff that we could get into, but maybe we shouldn't. I'd love to talk film with you. There's some more kind of just, like, things going on out there with, like, people saying crazy racist shit and, or, you know, prejudiced comments on social media like, anti-Semitic things that have been said that's, yeah. like really, really uncomfortable and just, uh, I don't know, man. I don't know what's going on in the world, well, but that's, like, a whole other I, thing that, like, there, there needs to be a little bit more dialogue about the fact that, like, you know, yeah. that shit doesn't fly. I,
2: I, I have to take a deep breath, um, because I'm a lightning rod. I make statements through my art all the time, and I have to understand that, it's the most extreme voices that are desperate to yell out on social media, and it's not really representative of the majority of people who might have opinions but aren't just maniacs. I'm not left enough for, for the far left, and I'm, way, and I'm a total socialist to the right. And I, I just I try to do my own research and, and observe and educate myself when I make a statement so that it's credible and I can stand behind it but I, I don't think that we can do anything beyond that. And I, you know, I hope that because social media is still, you know, in the grand scheme of things, a new medium, I think people are still adjusting and sort of calibrating to how pervasive the really, really horrible extreme voices are. And really that's just, now they're out in the open. Like Chappelle said, racism needs to like go back underground, but yeah, at least we know what we're up against. Yeah. yeah Russ sure. never sleeps, man. So I hear, Gotta keep, beautiful. gotta
1: stay vigilant yeah well dude that was awesome Shepard. I, I feel like we should do like a bunch of these because i want to talk to you about <laughs> quantum mechanics and the simulation theory but this is going to shut off in a couple minutes and that would be a lame way to end it so we might
2: as well just like thanks thanks for including me you know i've always been uh, an admirer of your your talent and your brain so you know even though There's, we don't see each other that much it's always a pleasure yeah it's
1: always a great pleasure talking with you man so thanks a lot for that bye everybody thanks yeah
2: thanks everyone
0: Paul Banks, Shepherd Ferry Thank you so much for joining us here on the TalkHouse podcast Listeners, if you haven't had a chance yet Definitely check out Muzz's debut LP If you enjoyed this talk, check out the conversation between Paul Banks and Rizza On TalkHouse from a
3: couple years ago And you can also catch the unedited video version of this talk And see their t-shirts on Instagram
0: And make sure to keep an eye there because we have some other very cool TalkHouse podcasts live on Instas coming up. Josh, you and I recorded ourselves in Chicago and Brooklyn, and Paul and Shepard talked into those black mirrors that we all carry in our pockets. The researcher for this week's show was Samantha Small, and our producer is Mark Yoshizumi. The TalkHouse podcast theme song was composed and performed by The Range. Till next week, I'm Ellie Einhorn. And I'm Josh Modell. Peace and new color palettes. We here at Talkhouse recognize that in 2020, even more than usual, life has sometimes felt like a bit too damn much. So we partnered with the very rad nonprofit Sound Mind to bring our listeners a free mental health toolkit. Over at talkhouse.com soundmind, you'll find valuable resources that cover everything from coping with coronavirus anxiety and grief to depression and bipolar support to suicide prevention help. There's links to support groups and to sliding scale therapy. You can check out community-specific resources for BIPOC, Latinx, and LGBT-identifying folks, as well as frontline workers, parents, and musicians. These are tough, tough times, and we're all feeling it. We want to make sure our listeners and readers are able to get the help they may need, starting at TalkHouse.com SoundMind.